Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. Hey there, you have found another episode of Making Waves at Sea Level. You know what? There have been over 2 million podcasts that have been started and put on platforms like Apple and Spotify, etc. And so you have a lot of choices of where you can spend your time listening to podcasts. So I really appreciate that you have chosen this show. It's coming up on our seventh anniversary and almost 700 episodes since I began this show, which was originally called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. But you know what? Even with a name change, we still talk to really cool entrepreneurs who are making waves and shaking things up in their industry. And today, we're going to talk seafood. I know when you woke up this morning, you thought, we don't talk enough about the seafood industry. I wish Tom would interview somebody who was making waves and making the experience of eating seafood very different. So that's what we're going to do today. But before we get started, I have to thank the first sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Stanton Chase International, one of the leading global executive search firms serving as trusted advisors to help companies build their senior leadership teams. Full disclosure, I work with Stanton Chase International. So if you have a company and you have a need at those senior levels, give me a call and I can work with you to get you in touch with some of the best people in our company making things happen. So today we are going to talk to Peter Handy. Now, he is the president and CEO of Bristol Seafood, and he's a guy who grew up in Northern California. He used to be a banker, and now he lives in Portland, Maine, trying hard every single day to change the business, the industry, the experience of seafood. So, Peter, welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level. Thanks for having me here, Tom. No, this is going to be fun. So, uh, Peter and I have met before. He actually was a student of my father-in-law when he was in high school and he came out to Austin, Texas to visit my father-in-law who used to teach at a, a, a all boys Catholic prep school in California. And uh, Peter came out to visit him and I got to have dinner with Peter and his wife. And I was like, this guy is an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. We need to have him on the show. And then like a week after he was here, COVID hit and I didn't, you know, get, follow through and get him on the show for over a year. But here we are today. So Peter, let's talk about Bristol Seafood. Tell me about the company. How did you come to own it? Yeah, so Br Bristol started about 30 years ago in 92. And when it started, it was really just buying whole fish out of Canada or here in New England and selling it, you know, buying by the truckload and then selling by the pallet into New York and D.C. and Florida. And over time, it evolved to do more processing and different kinds of work in the seafood space. Um, how I came to, to be involved is in 2014, uh, my wife and I decided we wanted to move to Maine. And so uh, we had just decided to have children. We were in Manhattan. She was acting. I was working in financial services and uh, eager to make a change to Maine. And so we looked at a bunch of different businesses we could get involved in. But ultimately, seafood was a place where we thought we could make a really meaningful impact in a way that mattered to us. Uh, so we bought Bristol in 2014. We've been here ever since. Nice. So uh, I take it that there's not a lot of acting for your wife in in uh, in Portland, Maine, or does she still act on the side while raising kids? You'd be surprised. So she is raising our three girls, uh, and she's definitely the primary at home parent. 
but she also started a community theater called Royal River Community Players, and and they're doing a great job over there. Yeah, no, that's that's such an awesome story and such a great way to serve to serve the community. So, Peter, let's talk a little bit about mission because I know this is something you care a lot about. And when we think, you know, seafood seafood distribution, I don't think that's when we go. Oh, yeah, let's talk about mission. But you're really on a mission in a lot of different areas of your company. Why is that so important? Well, with seafood, just the simple act of getting people to eat more seafood more often has a really profound impact on our world, right? It's huge for personal health. If you you go from the bottom decile of seafood consumption to the top, your risk of fatal heart attack falls by more than 90%. Uh, wait, wait, at, wait, 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 wait. Here's a statistic I've never heard. So if I'm a yeah. big seafood eater, my odds of dying of heart attack are 90% less than if I'm not a seafood eater? You got it. Or another way of saying it is if you're not a seafood eater, you're 10 times more likely to have a fatal heart attack than if you are. So that that unto itself, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty big seafood eater. Shellfish and I have have stopped being friends as I've gotten older, but but fish in general, I've always been a big, I grew up in Southern California, always been a big seafood eater. I've never heard a stat like that. Why, why is that not more well-known? You know, it's, it's a big deal. And I would say part of it's because the seafood industry is so small, right? The average person eats 220 pounds of animal protein, only 16 pounds of that seafood. And so just like seafood is a small part of everyone's diet. It's also a small part of the messaging that gets out into the world. Hmm. Interesting. So, okay. So that's, that's one really good reason. That's a good reason to be on that mission. Continue with your, with your talk about the stats around seafood. Yeah. I mean, climate change is something that's really important to me. The number one source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U S is industrial agriculture, primarily from pigs and cows. And so by getting people to switch to seafood, it's a much less carbon intensive product. And it also, California guy, saves a lot of fresh water. You know, bringing a pound of fresh pork to market takes 3,500 gallons of water. And it's just not the case with seafood, right? So if you kind of just look at health effects, climate change, water conservation, it's a huge win if we can just get people to eat a little more seafood a little more often. So we hear a lot about seafood and we hear about overfishing and stuff like that. So when you talk about environmental causes, isn't isn't seafood... Isn't there a problem when it comes to the environment? Aren't we, aren't we overfishing our waters? That's a good question, right? And there's, there's a way to do this wrong and there's a way to do it right, right? And so we're very intentional in selling sustainable products that are validated and verified to be sustainable. And those are the fisheries we reward and work with, right? And just like in the actual sourcing of seafood, you can do it well, you can do it poorly. I think we've learned that in running a business, you can treat people well or treat people poorly, right? So, for example, we're also the first fair trade certified seafood company in America because we want to drive seafood consumption. We want more people eating more fish more often, but we want to do it in a highly specific way, meaning sustainable, responsible, and something that supports our workers in a really unique way. So let's talk about this certification. So you're the first seafood company to have that. What what is it and why does it matter? So Fair Trade is a really interesting organization. When he started it, it was based on his uh, his learning that a lot of the coffee farmers were getting underpaid for their crop, living in poor conditions, and a lot of the economics of the great coffee that was being made in Latin America was being captured by 
brokers and sellers, et cetera, et cetera. And so he wanted to solve that and he wanted to do it with something that would harness market forces. So it would be economically sustainable. And so he did two things. One is he started this little label saying fair trade certified that a company can earn through really rigorous audits goes on their package and that consumers know that everyone in that supply chain has been treated fairly. And at the same time, a percentage of all the sales go directly back to the coffee farmers. Right? So what he did is he had a really unique insight. He said, people being well taken care of is something that a consumer will value. And so the businesses selling fair trade coffee do better. The farmers do better. And the people buying it and drinking that coffee in the morning know that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Do coffee, chocolate, bananas, and we're the first seafood company in the U S to do it. So, so that's fascinating. I've, I definitely have seen it on chocolate and on coffee, but I've never thought about it when it when it came to seafood. So if you're the first one to do it, this was clearly something that was important to you. It's not like you were like, oh, I got to keep up with my competitors. What made you go after the certification and be the first U.S. seafood company to get to get that? We like to walk the walk, right? It's it's one thing to say that you're treating people responsibly. And it's an entirely different thing to have it be a bedrock principle in your business that's validated by third-party auditors um, and is really a part of the way you go to work. And for us, it was important to have this be part of the soul of the company. I think that I think that is awesome. I didn't know that about your company. I'm glad to actually that that came up in, in the interview. So... One of the things that you have to do in order to, you know, change the way people look at seafood is get more people to eat seafood. And the problem is I know a lot of people who just don't like seafood. When you talk about, oh, we're going to have fish, they're like, can I have a burger? Uh, how do you how do you get people who have, you know, their mom didn't know how to cook fish, so their whole house stank or whatever, and they haven't experienced all of the different varieties, all the different ways you can eat seafood. How do you even get people to try salmon or something, halibut, if they've never, ever liked seafood? Well, what we've learned is that as many people who don't like eating seafood, there are as many reasons why they don't, right? And what we've tried to understand is what are the major reasons why people aren't picking up seafood? And how can the team and I be really thoughtful and intentional in solving those problems? So one of the things we've heard was, you know, I'm really concerned about whether it's sustainable and whether people are being treated right. Right. It's kind of how we started this discussion is, oh, my gosh, is it sustainable? And how do we know that everyone's getting treated fairly? And so we launched a U.S. Sea Scala that's certified by the Marine Stewardship Council as sustainable and is fair trade certified and is wild and is harvested in the U.S. Right. So all the big questions people have about seafood, we said, you know what, here, here is something that you know solves for all of those things that you're concerned about. But one answer leads to another question, right? Put this in people's hands and they say, that's great, but gosh, it's kind of hard to cook, <laughs> right? So the next thing we said is, all right, okay. Like, we, well, we, you, if you raise us, we'll meet you there. We started a brand called My Fish Dish, which takes those same great scallops and pairs them with chef-crafted compound butters, marinades, seasonings, so you can cook them at home and have a restaurant experience that really makes the seafood shine 
but it's not something with preservatives. It's not something with weird ingredients. It's really quality food that uh, would just take you a long time to make if we didn't do it here in our fish plant. So tell me more about this, my fish dish. First of all, I like the name, but second of all, you know, how are you marketing it? Where people get it? Is this a mail order thing? Is this a uh, thing you buy in your store? So if somebody, cause I, I'm thinking, uh, you know, what are the companies like Blue Apron and things like that who deliver all the things for you so that you can cook them? How do people get my fish dish? So my fish dish is available in grocery stores across the country, but it's also available with some online sellers like Crowd Cow or Hungry Root. So we want to meet consumers where they are. You know, if people are at home and they want a convenient seafood experience without leaving the house, they can log on to Hungry Root or Crowd Cow and it'll be there in the day or two. Or if people are at the grocery store and thinking about what they want for dinner and are looking for something that is simple, convenient, you can feel good about serving your family. It's there too. So I'm just going to play a little devil's advocate here. When it comes to mail order food, fish is not the first thing I would think of having shipped to me. So I assume, well, I assume this must come in like, uh, like when they ship uh, uh, Omaha steaks and things like that, it comes with dry ice and all that or, or, or what? Yeah, you got it. So some people ship it in a fresh state with uh, gel packs and like some people ship it frozen. But an interesting point is that frozen seafood is the fastest growing mail order item in the food category. Really? And frozen seafood is the fastest growing category in American retail. So that is a fascinating thing for everybody to listen to. I bet for those of you who are listening, you did not wake up this morning. If somebody had put you on a trivia show and said, what is the fastest growing category of mail order food, you would have said, oh, oh, it's frozen fish, because that's totally, totally it. I would I would think people would be like, you know, fish, there's the old saying when I, because you grew up in California, I grew up in California, there was the old saying that you didn't order fish unless you could see the water, you know, and. Well, here's, here's the thing that changed, right? People used to eat seafood primarily in restaurants. And when COVID hit and they couldn't scratch that edge, for a little while, people said, all right, we can't eat seafood, fine. But after a little while, they said, you know, it seems like we're going to be home for a while. Maybe <laughs> we ought to figure out how to do this. Right? <laughs> and so ordering seafood, you know, you get some trial of doing it. And what people found is frozen seafood today is not the frozen seafood your mom used to buy. Yeah, well, right? I mean, I'm... Innovation I'm, I'm, and freezing technology, it's just a different thing. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of seafood and uh, I definitely think that, you know, learning to cook it is, is, is hard, but it is not the way my mom used to just bread and fry filet a sole, you know, until it was like a little hockey puck. And, uh, you know, my wife is much more talented in the kitchen when it comes to cooking fish than my mom ever was. So let's talk about this. What are the challenges you have in growing Bristol seafood? It sounds like right now, from what you've said, you know, this should be a no brainer, but there's got to be challenges along the road. Oh my gosh, there are ton of challenges, right? And we've, we've made it harder, right? We've picked a hard business and we've told ourselves we only want to succeed in a highly specific way, right? Wasn't hard enough already. Let's up the ante, right? And so here we are trying to have an environment where our workforce participates in a really unique way economically, um, taking a stand for sustainability, taking, and not just for the fish, but for the packaging and how we operate and how we manage logistics. And so we've had to go more slowly because every rock we turn over, there are things that we want to do differently. 
And so it requires um, a team that understands that and is on board and excited by that. Uh, it requires the ability to um, think long-term, be willing to sacrifice short-term growth for long-term growth. Uh, it requires a willingness to invest and put capital at risk for something we think is going to work that a lot of other people don't. Um, and then when you do all those things, some things work and some things don't, right? And so it requires uh, the resilience to fail and fail and fail, knowing that each time you do that, you're learning and can get closer to solving this problem for the American consumer. So this is a great conversation. I've got a couple more questions for you. But first, I have to thank the other sponsor of this episode. So this episode, like all of them, is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure you're going to sound amazing. They do all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing people who are making waves in business like Peter Handy. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know, I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Peter, I used to call the show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What's the coolest thing you're doing with Bristol Seafood right now? Oh, my gosh. That's a really good question. I think where we've had to spend the most of our time recently is in how do we um, attract and retain a great workforce? We've all heard about how challenging it can be to hire people. And one of the most exciting parts of the job I have is we have the opportunity to hire everyone from uh, people who are senior level folks who've done packaged good work for consumers and travel all over the world, all the way to people who are uh, new immigrants, um, people who are formerly incarcerated, people who have recently overcome addiction. And for me, the coolest thing that's happening here is developing a culture where all those different circumstances and walks of life can come together and be a part of something that's successful. And uh, the, the truth is, it actually sets us up better than it otherwise would. And seeing that come to life has been amazing. So what were some of the struggles during COVID? You hear all these problems about getting and retaining people and everything else. Did, did you suffer many of those struggles that other people did? Or, or being in the food business, you know, was it one of those things where you weren't as impacted the same way as, as maybe people in retail? Yeah, so it's COVID was interesting the way it, uh, the way it hit, right? So we had the the base layer of running a food manufacturing plant during a global pandemic and keeping everyone safe, right? Very quickly evolving information and we needed to put safety first and we always did, The other things to think about though are when that shift happened from restaurants to retail, that my fish dish item I told you about takes four times more labor to produce per serving than the food we used to sell the restaurants, right? So we had the business tilt towards retail. And even though our business, you know, from a a volume perspective, stayed relatively similar, the labor need exploded, right? So suddenly we found ourselves in this complicated environment 
where we needed to hire a lot of people and we needed to find a way to onboard, train, have them be successful during a global pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, we we did a lot of things to do that. But in the lead up to it, what it really resulted in was just a huge amount of hours and a ton of commitment from all of our team members. And I'm, I'm so grateful for their willingness to really show up and make it happen for our customers. So in the last 15 months, what are you most proud of with the team at Bristol? You know, I'm most proud of the way that people have handled the pandemic, you know, whether it's uh, kind of a steadfast commitment to keeping themselves safe and their loved ones safe. You know, we have over 95% vaccination rate here, which I'm so proud that people are willing to take that step. Um, I'm proud of the fact that we're able to be innovative during a really scary time, right? A time when it's hardest to change, we change the most we've ever changed in our course of a business. And we installed four new production lines over the last 15 months to help us be more efficient, to help us be able to deliver these new items. And I look back on it and just accomplishing that against a neutral backdrop without a pandemic would have been Herculean. But doing it in the environment we were in, I, I, I'm just immensely proud of it. And I would say those 15 months are the hardest and most rewarding 15 months I've ever had and will likely ever have in my professional career. (laughs) So you left banking to buy a company and now you've changed and grown this company over the last seven or eight years. So here's my question for people who are like, they're a banker, they're an accountant and they, they are thinking, I want, I want to go make some waves in business. I want my own company. What advice do you have people who want to make a transition like you made of, of working for a traditional type organization like a bank to taking over a company and, and running and growing it? I think it's important not to expect that you'll be good at it, right? Um, I've learned in dozens of ways that when I started this role, I wasn't particularly adept at it. And being open-minded to be able to receive those signals and learn from them is crucial. And it's the only way that you can become satisfactory at your job. And so I would say, you know, to anyone making to look at any change, right? It's whether it's you know, play a new instrument, play a new sport, live in a new town, just uh, paying attention and noticing um, what's happening around you and making sure you're putting yourself in a position to learn from it. And that you've got the commitment to work through a lot of the challenges and that the change is truly important enough to you to make it worth stomaching all those challenges. I think it's crucial. I I love it. I I can't imagine if I didn't do this. (laughs) So Peter, if somebody wants to find out more about you or more about Bristol Seafood, where do they go? You can go to our website, bristolseafood.com. And you can always send me a note, Peter H at bristolseafood.com. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story here with the listeners of the show. I know that this was one of those episodes where I took notes just from the standpoint of things I didn't know about about your company and things that relate back. Because even though I'm not in the seafood business, we all face the same type of challenges when it comes to growing our businesses, no matter what we do. So thanks for being here and thanks for being so forthcoming with your story. Thanks for having me on. Eat more fish. <laughs> Eat more fish, everybody. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every episode. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we do the podcast? We are now approaching 700 episodes that we've done. So there is a big backlog for you to go listen to, but also more really great interviews with people who are making waves in business like Peter. 
So do me a favor. If you like the show, go tell a friend. People tell me they found the show. I say, how? You know, is it like, did you Google something? What? And they go, no, my sister told me, my boss told me, somebody told me to listen to an episode. And then I was hooked. I went back and I binged a bunch of them. So if you like this show, do me that favor. Go and tell a friend because that's the only way the show continues to grow. We're going to be back in a couple of days with an interview with somebody making waves who is just as cool as Peter Handy. And I know you're thinking, how will you ever find anybody that cool? Well, we will. But in the meantime, go out there, flex your business muscles, make sure your career ladder is against the correct wall because you don't want to climb the career ladder only to find out you're in the wrong place. And while you're out there doing all this work, have some fun along the way. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.